we are studying through the book of Ruth. We're still in chapter one, so go ahead and open your Bibles or your Bible app to Ruth chapter one. We are calling this series Hope as a Way of Life. By the way, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Dominic. I'm one of the pastor elders here. And uh, we're in Ruth chapter one, looking at verses 19 through 22. I'll be reading out of the NIV version. Ruth chapter one, starting in verse 19. So the two women, that is Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is God's word for us today. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I am so humbled to have the privilege and the high task of preaching your holy word today. Ask that your anointing would rest upon me. I thank you for every single person here today. Thank you that you know each one of our hearts. You know how to speak to us way better than any person ever could. And so we are trusting you, Holy Spirit, to do that work in our lives today. And so we ask that you would help our ears to be open to hear what you want to say to us. Thank you that you see each one of us in our situations, in our lives, even in the difficult circumstances. You see us. You know us. You call us by name this morning. We ask that you would call us by name once again as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So what a scene it must have been, right? As Naomi rolled back into her hometown of Bethlehem in Israel, it says that the town was stirred. All the people were buzzing in conversation. Like any tight-knit community, who hadn't seen one of their members for a very long time, I imagine that word had spread far and wide, like, hey, did you hear? Naomi's coming back. It's been years. Naomi's coming back. It had been over a decade since anyone in Bethlehem had seen Naomi. But as she approaches, instead of being greeted with excitement by the women in the town, she's met with bewilderment. Can this be Naomi? They ask. On one hand, the fact that she was back in Bethlehem at all would have been surprising to them. But on the other hand, it seems that the years of suffering and loss had taken a toll, not only on her heart, but even on her appearance. For her old community could hardly even recognize her just after 10 years. She had left as Naomi the pleasant one, a thriving woman in the prime of her life but she had returned as a haggard and destitute woman beat up by the tragedy of life. 
See, as we saw two weeks ago, Naomi and her, the last two weeks, Naomi and her husband and her two sons had moved away from Bethlehem in Israel to a place called Moab during a famine in Israel. And while they were there in Moab, Naomi's two sons met and married these Moabite women. And so it was like, okay, praise God. Right, we've moved to Moab. We're not starving anymore. We have work, we have food. Our boys have met women, they've married them. God is providing for us. The Almighty is meeting our needs. But soon after they move, Naomi's husband passes away. And then just a few years later, both of her sons die. The narrator of the story doesn't give us any details about how Naomi's sons and husbands die because that's not really the point. The point is the pain that she is experiencing because of the tragedy. And I can imagine it as a father and as a husband. It's, it's the greatest fear that a mother, a wife could have, a father, a husband could have. Your spouse suddenly dying and then you losing all of your children. And not just losing all of your children, but losing them long before they should have died. Her, her sons couldn't have been more than mid-20s. So within a 10-year period, this woman faces famine, which leads to poverty that is so bad that her and her family have to leave their hometown where they're comfortable, where there's people that look like them and talk like them and worship the same God as them, where they grew up, where their extended family is, and go to a place called Moab, the land of the Moabites, which were the ancient enemies of Israel. I've thought about having to move somewhere that I despise, just like within the United States even, right? I've thought about having to move to a place like New Mexico. I'm sorry if you're from New Mexico. I actually love you. I don't like New Mexico. It's ugly. The Mexican food is terrible. Like if you're going to be called New Mexico, right? Like you should have better Mexican food. I'm just saying. And as I think about it, though, I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe we have to leave California at some point because we can't afford to live here. Maybe we'll have to go somewhere like New Mexico. And the only thing that makes it bearable to me is that my family would be with me. Okay, at least we would all be in this together. Naomi and her husband and their two sons moved to this God-forsaken land of Moab. But at least they're all together, right? Until they're not. And so Naomi is left alone, childless, widowed, probably unable to marry again. No one to carry on her heritage or her bloodline, which for women in the first century also meant that she would have no one to really provide for her. She's living in a foreign land, foreign land far away from her hometown, from her original community, from her extended family. This part of her life really is a tragedy. So when she hears that the famine's over in Israel, no wonder that she's like, I'm out. I'm done with Moab. I'm going back to Bethlehem in Israel. After all, what's left for her in Moab? And at first, both of the son's wives, the daughters-in-laws are like, we're going with you. And Naomi's like, no, you do not go with me. We saw this last week. Do not come with me. There is nothing for you there. You're going to be a widow. You're going to be a foreigner. They're not always nice to foreigners. It depends on who you run into. Here, there's more for you here. Just stay here. And one of the daughter-in-law says, okay, I'll stay here. But the other one, Ruth, in this, this uh, deep commitment, 
This noble commitment says to her, no, Naomi, wherever you go, that's where I'm going. Your God is now going to be my God. Your people are now going to be my people. I'm going where you're going. I'm going to die where you die. I'm not leaving you. I'm going to be buried in the land that you are buried in. And so realizing that there's nothing she can do to keep Ruth from coming with her, Naomi allows her to come along. And the narrator of the story, we just read it, is silent about what happens over the next seven days between Moab and Bethlehem. What did they talk about? Did they reminisce about their husbands and honor them and their lives? Did Ruth ask questions about what it was going to be like in Bethlehem? What, the, what her people were like? What, what it was like to worship Naomi's God? Or did they not talk at all? Some commentators believe the silence of the narrator here is actually intentional. That maybe this 2,000 mile journey on foot was full of bitter cold silence, that maybe the trip was as sorrowful and bitter as Naomi's heart. But it wasn't just that Naomi was experiencing some bitter sorrow in her heart. Naomi had become this bitter sorrow. And this is really the key point of this part of the story and what we need to say today. Because in order to understand what is coming next, in order to understand the other acts of this play, if you will, in order to understand the hope that is coming, we must see the hopelessness of Naomi's state, which is actually the point of this section of the story. She wasn't just suffering. This woman had suffered so greatly for so long that she had now become defined by her suffering. It had engulfed her. She had somehow now embodied the bitterness of her suffering. And it wasn't simply that other people like saw it on her, but she herself had chosen to wear it, if you will. Can this be Naomi? She hears them saying it as she's approaching Bethlehem. Naomi, it means pleasant. Her name means pleasant one. But Naomi's life is anything but pleasant at this point. She says to them, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Some of us have been there, right? Life circumstances become so intense that it feels like they suck the life right out of you, like the air becomes thinner, like food begins to lose some of its taste, colors are muted. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. You know, as I sat with this passage this week, I was like thinking about her life. I always try to put myself like in the context, like what would it have been like to be there? Sometimes we disconnect ourselves from scripture. We need to put ourselves there and say, God, what were you doing? What was happening there? And as I, I sat there, I was like, my goodness, had this woman even heard her name said in years? Listen, she would have not made a bunch of friends in Moab, probably no friends. Her only community would have been her family. Her sons would have called her Ima, right? That's how you say mom in Hebrew. Her daughters would have called her Ima. The only person who probably used her first name was her husband. But her husband had been dead for years. I wonder if nobody had even said her name out loud, if she had never even heard the word Naomi or hadn't heard the word Naomi, pleasant one, associated with her in years. 
And as she walks up, she hears them say her name, and I wonder if it shocked her. And while this name may have been true of her when she left 10 years earlier, this woman who had departed as pleasant had now returned as bitter. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Mara, it's how you say bitter in Hebrew. What a name, right? Like literally, you pick up a a lemon, and you take a bite of the peel and the lemon, and somebody's like, how is it? And you say, Mara. Yeah, that, she says. That, you call me that. That's my name now. She had not only experienced bitterness from her suffering, but she had become it. You know, we're all made up of different things. We all have an identity that is unique to each of us. God has made us like that on purpose. In life, there are things that you not only do, but things that you are. There are, for instance, those who not just surf, but are surfers, right? You're like, oh, you're a surfer. Somebody said to me, Dominic, are you a surfer? I'd say, no, I I do enjoy surfing a bit, but I'm not a surfer. It's not like part of who I am. On the other hand, if you said, Dominic, are you a musician? I'd say, yeah, yeah, I'm a musician. I don't just play music. Playing music is a part of who I am. There are things that just exist out there in life that we do or that are done to us. And then there are things that actually become a part of who we are. And rightly so, some of them, right? We see throughout scripture that God renames people according to who they are or who he sees them to be or who they will become. Abram, for instance, the word means a father, the name means father. And that was prophetic. It was right. It was like, yeah, he was going to be a father. But God said, no, 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 no. Your name is going to not be Abraham anymore. Your name is going to be Abraham. Because Abraham means not just father. It means father of many. And Abraham, we become a father of an entire nation. See, each one of us has uniquely has been uniquely identified as a child of God. And that identity is often connected to what God is doing in our lives and who he has made us to be, who he has called us to be, who he has made us. God put a calling on Abraham's life and that calling became a part of who he was. And so he began to make decisions based on that, right? He was like, okay, if I'm a father of many and God is gonna bless the nations through my life, then I'm gonna make a different decision about what I say yes to, what I prioritize, what I think about, how I build my house, all of these things that's gonna change who I am. Identity informs our actions. And God will even do things in our lives that become a part of our identity. And then we begin to live out from that identity. For instance, when we read in scripture, God's saying something about you and he says, you are That's an identity statement, right? You are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. When you begin to believe that identity, it changes the way that you think, changes the way you feel, changes the way that you act. You show up to a situation not defeated, not small, not weak, but powerful in God, more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And you begin to act, think, feel, accordingly, according to your identity. 
And God does allow suffering in our lives. And that suffering will produce emotions. Sorrow, doubt, fear, even bitterness. It's to be expected. No one would have looked at the life of Naomi and been like, hey, Naomi, just get over it. After all you said, just get over it. It's understandable that this woman was experiencing some bitterness, okay? Don't hear me wrong. It is understandable that this woman was experiencing some bitterness, the emotion bitterness in response to the bitter tragedy of her life. I can even see why she wanted to blame God for it. I've been there. Scripture is chalked full of honest complaints to God about our circumstances. It's part of the lamenting process. We come to God honest. We must do it. We must be honest. He wants us to be honest. And Scripture is full of all of the emotions that come with the painful circumstances of life. But those emotions were never intended to define us or to form our identity. Because when they become the lens through which we see everything, then they become the fuel that drives our decisions. I am a sufferer. It's an identity statement. I am. It's not just I am suffering. That is something that's happening to me out there. I am a sufferer. It is my identity. It's who I am. And so then you begin to live like you are a sufferer. I am victim. It's an identity statement. Not just I have been a victim to something terrible. This is who I am. I am alone versus I'm experiencing loneliness right now in this moment, but I am not alone. It is an identity statement. I am weak. I am bitter. Hardship. It is actually an external thing that happens to us and affects us. But if we are not careful, we can become identified by it. Don't call me pleasant, Naomi said. In other words, that's not who I am anymore. That's not what my life is, and that is not what my life will be because that is not who I am. Don't call me that. My new name is bitter. That is who I am now. That is what my life is, and therefore then that will, is what my life will be. And this is the attitude that she comes back to her homeland with. That's why she's like, don't come with me. I'm a bitter old woman who's just going to die like this. There is no hope for me. Don't come with me. This is who I am now. And as she puts on her bitterness and as she embodies tragedy, the tragedy of her circumstance, she begins to think and act not like the one whose life could be pleasant again, but like someone whose life would always be nothing more than bitter. And some of us have done the same. Some of us are there right now. Our well-being has become directly connected to our circumstances. Our, our hope is contingent on the level of suffering that we do or don't experience. The hardship is present. We're not okay. The hardship goes away. We get a little bit okay again. It becomes a part of us. It defines us. It defines the way that we think and feel and act. The truth is we're... We're going to experience trouble. Jesus said, hey, in this world, you are going to have trouble. James said, don't be surprised. Don't think it a strange thing when you fall into all different kinds of suffering and trials. We live in a fallen world. People are going to fail you. 
You're going to experience the effects of sin. Friends are going to leave. Spouses are going to be unfaithful. People are going to cheat you and lie to you. You'll experience loneliness and hardship. Disease will come. Sickness will stay. People are going to die. And until Jesus returns with the new heaven and the new earth, God will allow all of that in the life of the Christian. Many of us have suffered deeply and experienced the sorrow of deep loss and grief. Many here today, you you know what it is like to have been full and and feel like now, now God has brought me back empty. You know what it's like to have prayed to the heavens and feel like, I don't know if God even hears me. And if he does, why is he so cruel to not answer? To wonder if, if he's actually good at all. To wonder if he hears, is he powerful enough to do something? Does he really care? Is he concerned? Is he even interested in what's happening in my life? And some of you know exactly how Naomi must have felt when her anger and bitterness grew so big that she became identified by it. When she became no longer defined by the pleasant one who happened to experience a bitter circumstance, but instead had herself become bitter. And let's be straight about this, right? God had dealt bitterly with her. Or at least he had not stopped the bitter tragedy from entering her life. That much was true. What wasn't true was her interpretation of what that meant for her and her life. Her conclusion was, because the circumstances of my life are terrible, my life will now be terrible. This is now what defines my entire existence. She was not wrong about her situation. It was terrible. That was true. But her interpretation of what that meant for her was false. Because, listen, God has a way of using the most terrible circumstances to make the most beautiful things. God has a way of bringing beauty from ashes. Honestly, I think it's, it's, it's one of the things he does best. We actually see it in all of creation. The leaves have to die before there can be new life, right? Death precedes life. Our cells regenerate every seven years. They got to die and then be regenerated. I look at Hawaii. I love Hawaii. And it was forged from fire and pressure and And then the volcanic soil from the lava that is so destructive, it actually fertilized the soil. That's why it's so green in Hawaii. You see it after a fire. It's so destructive. There's ash, and the ash fertilizes the soil, and then stuff starts to grow better and more fruitful than it ever has before. In the kingdom of God, death actually brings life. Broken things actually turn into beautiful things. Hebrews 12, 11 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Somebody say amen. amen. But painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's hard to see when we're right in the middle of it. It's hard for me to see. I'm preaching to myself here. But God is actually working all things together 
for the good of those who love him, even the hardest and worst things. Naomi's tragedy led her to believe that God was punishing her. But actually, this whole story is about God's plan to restore her and her family. It's the entire story, man. He wasn't just bringing the fire. He was purifying the soil to make way for new, abundant growth. Little did she know, despite the emptiness she felt, the Almighty was actually preparing the way for Naomi to experience the fullness of his blessing. She doesn't even realize it, but right there, even standing next to her, is a glimmer of hope in her daughter-in-law, Ruth. But blinded by her shame and her loss and defined by her bitter suffering, Naomi can't even see the hope of her pleasant future. But the narrator of the story has not lost sight of what is coming. He slips in another hint of hope as he closes this chapter. Did you catch it? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The widow's return was at the beginning of the barley harvest. The last time Naomi was here, those same fields would have been barren and desolate because of the famine. But this April to May harvest, it was beginning to sprout up. And maybe, this author hints, maybe this harvest would provide enough grain for everyone including the poor, the immigrant woman, and even the bitter widow. Could it be that just maybe God was orchestrating everything perfectly, even the timing of the harvest? It's almost as if God was working for Naomi's good even when she couldn't see it. And now even the barley fields are prophesying, if you will, about what is to come. The place of famine was about to become a place of plenty. And although she didn't know it, the Almighty One was about to replace her own emptiness with fullness. The preacher Alexander White once said that the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And he was right. Naomi didn't realize it, but there is always a new beginning, friends, right around the corner. All she could see was her suffering. Surely it was too late for something new and beautiful. But Naomi was about to experience a new and beautiful beginning because with God, it is never too late to start again. Somebody here needs to hear that today, that with God, it's never too late to start again. And your circumstances, friends, may be so overwhelming like Naomi that you feel like they've defined you. you. You too wear them like a cloak, maybe even unintentionally. They've overtaken your perspective to the point where it's the lens through which you see all of life and even through which you interpret all of God's actions and thoughts towards you. Maybe like you, or maybe like Naomi, you don't even remember who you used to be or how you used to be. But you need to know today that this is not the end. In the kingdom of God, suffering does not get the final word. And death actually leads to life. Sin does not have the final word. Sickness does not have the final word. Even death does not have the final word. 
The truth is the night is always darkest before the dawn, and the dawn always does come. There is always a new beginning ahead. And so I'd like to ask this morning, if you find yourself in a difficult, maybe even suffocating situation, are you willing to trust God for a new beginning? Are you willing to trust that he loves you enough, he is good enough, and he is powerful enough to bring a new beginning in your life? Because I want to encourage you, God does allow suffering in our lives, but like a loving father, he will always use it to teach us, train us, shape us, and produce something glorious in us if we will allow him to do it. Because when, when, we, when we let him, when we allow him, his loving discipline will, as it says in Hebrews 12, produce in us a harvest of righteousness and peace. On the other hand, if we don't allow him to do it, if we push back and don't receive it, then a bitter root will begin to grow in us as the rest of Hebrews 12 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Here's what happens when you miss the grace of God. So that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. The way to avoid a bitter root in the middle of our suffering is to recognize that the Lord's loving discipline is always an act of grace. He is always in the middle of our suffering working and he is always doing it graciously from his heart of love for our good. Someone needs to hear today that not only does God love you, but that he's not gonna waste your pain. He does not waste our pain ever. He will use every bit of it to make something beautiful. We can't control the circumstances of life, but we can control how we respond to them. And that is what faith is. Daring to believe that God is working everything for our good, even when we don't feel like it or see it happening. Two different times, Naomi calls God El Shaddai. It's a title given to God that means the Almighty One, the All-Powerful One. It was used in the book of Genesis to talk about the times when God would provide for his people so abundantly that it was beyond what they could have imagined. She's declaring what he can do. Naomi knew God was almighty and powerful, but she forgot that he was also gracious and compassionate. She declared his name, El Shaddai, the Almighty One who always provides for his people. But she couldn't believe it for herself. Because it's one thing to know God's name, right? It's another thing to trust that name and to trust it for yourself. Naomi had forgotten who God was, and in forgetting who God was, she had forgotten who she was. She had lost faith that she could ever line up to her name, Pleasant One, again. She was right. She couldn't live up to that name. She couldn't get her sons back or her husband back. She couldn't take control if she was going to get to marry somebody again or if her family would somehow continue. Her daughter-in-law was a widowed foreigner. It was an impossible situation. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Naomi may have forgotten who she was, but listen, friends, God had not forgotten who she was. Naomi may have not wanted her name anymore, but God remembered her name. Because as we'll see throughout the rest of the story, right in the middle of the most bitter circumstances of her life, God was orchestrating every single detail in order to restore the pleasantness of this woman's life back to her. 
I'll end with this. We are going to experience suffering in this life. But we do not have to be defined by it. Is there a name that you are carrying that's defining you? What are you calling yourself? I want to encourage us today to ask, and what does God call us? Has the painful circumstance of life become so heavy and so big that it's now the lens that we see everything through? I believe that this morning God is wanting to restore some names back to people. That name that you originally bore, that you knew this is who God says I am, I believe he's wanting to speak that back to you. You may not be able to see it, but maybe there is actually the beginning budding of a new harvest blooming in your life right around the corner. I want to ask you to allow God to give you new glasses, if you will, to see it. Allow him to lift your head beyond your circumstances to see the horizon of hope. To allow him to speak over you your name once again. To replace your cloak of bitterness and suffering with the robe of righteousness from Christ. As the scriptures say, today you can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is actually our hope. Guys, we were the hopeless ones in the story. When we were fully destitute and hopeless, that's when Christ came. And he took on our suffering so that we would not have to be identified by it any longer. You will have suffering, but it does not need to define you because we have been saved by the one who took our suffering and then gives us a new identity that is stronger and more eternal than our suffering. And that is where we find hope. Our sufferings are real, but they do not have to be our identity. Jesus took, bore our suffering and has given us his identity. He's given us his righteousness. That's where we can rest today. And that is where we can find hope ultimately. Amen? Thank you, God, for the reality of these truths. Thank you that when we were in our darkest, deepest, hopeless, most hopeful, hopeless place, that that's when you came to us, Jesus, that you found us there. And I pray now for my brothers and sisters who may once again find themselves in a different kind of hopeless place, that you would once again speak. That as some of us say to you, no, that's not who I am anymore. I'm, I'm bitter. I'm broken. I'm this, I'm that. That you would speak back and say, no, you're not. I know who you are. You're who I say you are. We ask that right now, even during this second set of worship, that we would hear you speak over us the name that you call us. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you have not put your trust in him, you need to know that that emptiness you are experiencing is because you were created for a relationship with God. And without it, you will always be working to fill it and always be failing to fill it, fill it, fill it. Because you were created to be full with him. 
Today you can come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You just need to come to him and say, gosh, Lord, I, I need you. I recognize I need a savior. I recognize that I'm actually hopeless without you. Please come. Give me new life. Please come. Give me new life. Ask Jesus into your life. And if you need prayer for anything, our prayer team is going to be on the, the right and the left over by these mini, uh, the, the welcome tents. There's some signs that say prayer team. They're either wearing a green shirt or a, a lanyard that says prayer team. And they would love to pray for you about anything. The communion elements are also there. I want to encourage you, get up, go grab some communion, take it back to where you and your family are sitting and partake of the elements. And as you take the, the bread, remember the body of Christ that was broken. As you drink the cup, remember the blood that was shed. And as you do it, remember that in that moment, Christ bore your suffering and has exchanged your suffering with his identity, has given you his righteousness. He has given you his righteousness. You are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You don't have to wear that thing anymore. And as we sing, let's allow hope to rise up in us as we turn our eyes to the one who doesn't waste anything, who works all things for good.